Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. One Corinthians chapter fifteen, starting at verse one. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe me in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though, so, though some of whom have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as of one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that He raised Christ, uh, that we that, uh, we even be found in misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit to those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected he who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean being baptised on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but my pride is in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken supper, as it is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? 
You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from glory in, as well as glass in glory. So is it with so it is with resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable; what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written: the first man Adam became a living being; the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spirit that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth. A man of dust; the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. Who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers: flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable. Uh, inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery: we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, "Death is swallowed in up in victory." O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good afternoon, friends. My name is Tim. It's great to see you in week nine.、Uh, one of the pastors on campus. If we haven't met,、uh, and we have a great passage in front of us,、uh, many, many great truths. Let's pray and ask for God's help to understand them.、Uh, our great God, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the truths that you make known to us in the Scriptures, and Father, we pray that today you would help us by the power of your Spirit to know what this Word means for us, that we may live well in your world. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, sometimes it takes death to bring life into focus. I'm sure, you've heard that one month ago, almost the day, thousands of young Israelis had gathered for a music festival just a few kilometres from the border with Gaza. Tragically, hundreds would never return home. 
having been massacred by Hamas militants uh, and some taken away into captivity as hostages. Uh, since then, estimates are that around 10,000 others, civilians, children, soldiers, medics across Israel and Gaza, have also lost their lives. Uh, two weeks ago, two young teaching staff went to work at St Andrew's Cathedral School in the city. Tragically, neither ever returned to their families. Over the weekend, you might have heard that a couple of young families were enjoying a meal at a regional Victorian pub, enjoying the long weekend, enjoying the sunshine, when a car smashed through the beer garden, killing five. Two families decimated. Or yesterday, you may have heard the confronting news of a car accident in southwest Sydney. It left two school kids dead, and the driver and the passenger in the front just walked off. Friends, we hear about death all the time. But most of us think that death is kind of out there. It's going to wait its turn when it comes to us and our lives. But if you follow the news, if you scroll through social media, every day death seems to break this unwritten contract and reach in and take people before their time is up. If we know death, how does death bring life into focus? Is there something you want to achieve? Some way you'd like to be remembered? Something you'd like to leave behind? As we reflect on death, so much of what consumes our lives isn't really what we want to be remembered for. I take it you're not wanting someone to read out your wham at your funeral. But so much of our time and energy goes towards it. Same with your part-time jobs. Same with your career. Same with your projects, your hobbies. If you know death, how will you live now? That's a question that confronts the world. But perhaps the question we have to consider this afternoon is a little bit more pointed. It's perhaps the particularly Christian take on this question. It's not so much about death, but about the resurrection from death. Because if you know that the dead will be raised, how then will that shape the way that you live? Does eternity make what happens in these few short years more or less significant than death? And if eternity is our future, how does it change life now? Daily we're confronted by death. How does the knowledge of the resurrection change things for us? These are some pretty heavy ideas. It's probably not your choice topic for a week nine Bible talk, but they are real and they are around us. And the Bible speaks essential truth into the realities of our lives, even the reality of death. And so not just for Christians, but for everyone, what this passage has to say is actually truth that we all need to hear, and more than that, to build our lives upon. Because the place where we begin when considering death and life beyond death is really the foundation, it's the essentials, it's the core of Christianity. We're at point two, Christ has been raised. If you've been with us these last few weeks, the Bible talks, Paul's been teaching about why and how God's people have come together as a church. It's an expression of their unity as the body of Christ. Every member is valued, every member has been equipped by God's Spirit with an essential role to play. Both male and female are necessary in this gathering of God's people. And they equip the body, they build one another up in love as they speak the truth. Now, Paul moves on to focus in particular on that truth that is the foundation that gathers them and the source of the words that are to be spoken when they gather together. 
this truth is what Christian services, indeed the whole Christian life, must be all about. So, have a look at verses 1 to 3. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you have been saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This message is the Christian gospel, the message that alone has the power to save all who believe. To believe is to trust that the message is true, and so to build your life upon the stable foundation of this truth. And since this gospel is true, it's essential, it's unchanging, it's the truth that you need to hold to. Don't shift from it. Don't go anywhere else. But what is the message? Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then He appeared to James, and then to all the Apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. There's lots of details in these verses, but at its heart, this Christian Gospel is about one man, and two really key historical events that are, well, explained and attested to by God. You see, the man at the centre is Jesus of Nazareth. He was born to a young virgin named Mary in probably the year 6 BC. But in verse 3, he's simply called the Christ. This was not their family name, it was rather the title for the king that would bring lasting peace and salvation to God's people. You see, God made this great promise to Israel's great King David. We read about it in 2 Samuel 7. God addresses David and says, when you die, when your days are fulfilled, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I'll establish His kingdom. Not just like David's kingdom, but far greater. He shall build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of His kingdom forever. Or in passages like Psalm 110, we see that the rule, the reign, the power of this king is second only to God Himself. Because the Lord says to my Lord, this Christ, this King, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. You see, Christianity is built on the truth that Jesus, whose miraculous birth we celebrate at Christmas, is no less than the Christ, God's promised ultimate and eternal King. And the two crucial historical events that took place for the Christ is that the Christ died and that's supported or attested to the fact that He was then buried, and that Christ was raised from the dead, which is supported by the fact that He was seen alive by many reliable witnesses. Now, we can read about these historical events in other ancient sources. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, writing at the end of the first century, says, now there was about this time a man called Jesus, a wise man. He drew over to Him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, and when Pilate at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Or, if you don't like the Jewish historian, you can go to the Roman historian, Cornelius Tacitus. He writes that those called Christians by the populace, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, he suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, 
the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And that breaking out seems to be a reference to the fact that he was seen, risen from the grave, proclaimed as Lord. So these are the historical events. A question for you is, are these other historical accounts proclaiming the Christian gospel? Uh, there's the question, do these historical accounts proclaim the Christian gospel? Uh, I'll leave you with Josephus, just for fun. 30 seconds, say hi. Is this a proclamation of the Christian gospel? 30 seconds. All right, friends, it's a short question and a long passage. It's time to commit. This is assessment time of the term. Uh, hands up if you think these historical accounts proclaim the Christian gospel. A few hands. Hands up if you think they don't. Uh, there's a few more hands. Hands up if you're not willing to commit. Uh, no one's willing to commit to that either. Uh, while the historical facts that are central to the gospel are proclaimed in these passages the Christian gospel seems to go beyond the mere facts. At the heart of Christianity is not just that the Christ died and that He was raised, but what God achieved through these events. If you like, it's God's divine explanation that is key to the Christian gospel. And so firstly, we see the purpose of Christ's death was to pay the penalty for human rebellion against God. And that's what it means when we read that Christ died for sins. Jesus' death was not His failure, it was not His defeat, it wasn't that things didn't go according to plan. No, it was His very purpose as the Christ. In order to rescue, in order to gather God's people, they didn't need political deliverance, they didn't need social deliverance, they needed to be saved from themselves and the judgment of God. And Jesus was able to do that because He lived a perfect life of obedience to God, and then He offered up His own blameless life as a sacrifice, as a substitute in the place of those He came to save. So now everyone who believes that Jesus is this Christ who died for their sins can be forgiven. And now this isn't just some outrageous claim that a few first century fishermen came up with in the hot Palestinian sun. The idea that God's saving King is the one who died to offer life, well, it's something that God had testified to in the Scriptures. God had told us about this in advance, particularly in the Old Testament, before it came about. And when it says, in accordance with the Scriptures, I think it's kind of saying, in the broadest sense. Because the resurrected Lord Jesus spoke to the disciples in Luke 24, and said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's kind of a summary of the major sections of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opens their minds to understand the Scriptures, that said in the Scriptures, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, that is die, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, your witnesses of these things. You see, Jesus' summary of the message of the Old Testament is that He must suffer and die and He must rise and that the Gospel must be proclaimed. But I guess if you want a particular passage within the breadth that talks about the meaning that God says that the Christ's death would achieve, Isaiah 53 is probably one of the clearer ones. It talks about the Christ, the servant, who would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement or the judgment that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, we've turned away from God in rebellion against God to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him, the Christ, the one who would suffer in our place, the iniquity of us all. You see, God tells us the profound and divine significance of Christ's death. It was a death for sin. It was a death that could bring life and forgiveness. If you're there at the time, you could verify that Jesus died under Pontius Pilate, crucified publicly, buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But God had to reveal the true profound significance the gospel truth behind these events. Uh, similarly, on the third day, on the, in accordance with the Scriptures, the Christ was raised from the dead and seen. Uh, many of those who witnessed the risen Lord Jesus knew Him personally. There were people like the twelve disciples, His half-brother James, but then there was also this great crowd of more than 500 Christian brothers and sisters. And most of them were still alive at the time of this writing, though some had fallen asleep. The key significance is not that Jesus was raised to life, other humans have been raised to life again, but the key truth here is that the Christ was raised to life. As Peter testifies in Acts 2, you can go have a read later, on the great day of Pentecost, Peter says Jesus' resurrection declares Him to be the Christ, the promised King, the one who will live forever and so reign forever as God had promised He would. You see, Jesus wasn't raised like His dear friend Lazarus, raised to enjoy a few more years and then die again. No, Jesus was raised as the Christ, as the beginning of the resurrection age, to never taste death again, to be proclaimed as the ruler and the saviour of the world. Now again, if you were there, you might have seen the flesh and blood risen Jesus, complete with the glorious scars of His crucifixion. But without God's revelation, without the testimony of the Scriptures, we wouldn't know that the end of the world had come, that the ruler of the world had been declared as the Christ who walks among us. This is the profound truth of these events. So, friends, if you want to know the core message of Christianity, the facts and their interpretation upon which the Christian life and the Christian faith is built, this is it. Jesus is the Christ who died for sin, was buried, was raised as the Christ on the third day, and seen by many, all in accordance with the Scriptures. There is a ruler. There is an end. There is the offer of forgiveness and life. And so, friends, if you are here exploring Christianity today, these are the truths that you need to grasp and explore. And if you believe they are true, then you must always hold fast to them. To deviate from these is to walk away from Jesus and to lose the offer of salvation. So, what does it mean to believe in the risen Christ today? We're at point three, raise first for us to join Him. You see, the first profound implication of Christ's resurrection is that it is only the beginning. Since Christ has been raised from the dead, we can know that all who believe in Him will be raised in the same way. This is what it means for Him to be the first fruits. Like the first flower to bloom, Christ's resurrection shows us that we soon too will be raised to never die again. Like the first fruit taking shape on a vine, 
Christ's life shows that we too can live forever. Or like the first runner to cross a finish line, seeing Christ raised announces that more will soon join Him, just in a short period of time. Given the foundation that Christ has been raised from the dead, it's now impossible to deny that the dead will be raised like Him. To even try and deny the resurrection, well, it erodes the whole foundation of the Christian faith and the Christian life. In verses 12 to 19, that's Paul's basic argument. Without the resurrection, there's no forgiveness, there's no hope. Those who've died, they're gone for good. There is no hope for them. There's no point in faith, there's no good news to share. And in fact, those who try and proclaim the good news, if the dead are not raised, they misrepresent God. And that's a pretty serious offence. Without the resurrection, Christianity is nothing. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this changes everything. As humans, we all follow in the ways of our great ancestor, Adam. Unfortunately, those ways are rebellion against God and the judgment of death. But in Christ, Paul tells us there's a new beginning, there's a new hope, there's new life, and that is the kingdom of God. And so we read in verse 21, As by a man, that's Adam, came death, and by a man, Christ, has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Now these are profound and wonderful truths for God's people. Uh, a few months ago, my dad was diagnosed with stage 4 bowel cancer. For him, death looks like a horizon that is much closer than any of us had anticipated or hoped for. But because he belongs to Christ, because he knows that Christ has been raised, so will he. So he can say, it's a great comfort to know where you are going. Christ has gone there first, and he will bring all who trust him safely through the grave. Now, the obvious question seems to arise in verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, some of you may be familiar with a saying that James Dean popularized, live fast, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. Now, unfortunately, that good-looking corpse doesn't last so long. And so, the obvious question is, what will we look like in the resurrection? The bodies that we have, after a little while, are not the most presentable. Now, the question's understandable, but Paul's response seems quite strong. Basically, he's saying, it's not our problem. We don't need to worry about it. You can trust the God who gives life and has created all things to look after the details. Besides, there's some other examples that give us confidence. In verse 6, we know that with plants, the seed that you bury isn't the same, doesn't look the same as the plant that grows out of it. Now, they're intimately connected. The seed that goes into the earth is the foundation for the plant that comes out. In the resurrection, you are you. But what do you look like? Who knows? Then he also talks about the fact that even in the world around us, God makes different kinds of flesh. There's a kind for humans and for animals and for birds and for fish, and they all look different, and they're all appropriate for the context they find themselves in. It's the same even if you look to the heavens. There's different bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, each of them glorious, but each of them distinct. 
And Paul says it's the same principle when it comes to the resurrection. We're going to be given a glorious new body. It's going to be fit for all eternity. We're not sure exactly what it's going to look like. But it will be wonderful. I will read from verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, buried in the ground, is perishable. These bodies age, they break down, they decay, they die. But what is raised is imperishable. There's going to be no nursing homes, let alone funeral homes, in the new creation. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. And that's not to demean our bodies. These bodies are made in the image of God. They are amazing. They are fit for purpose. They're to be honored and cared for. But if you think this is good, what comes to the new creation is far, far greater. It's sown in weakness and it's raised in power. And I want to say it doesn't matter how much you gym or can bench, your body is still weak and frail and it will be transcended in the glorious new creation. Now, I'm a few more years down the track from you, but when I caught up with some friends that I went to uni with the other day, there was a remarkable number of stories of people who'd pulled muscles whilst yawning or put their back out whilst sneezing, and we consider that we're still in our prime. But you may laugh now, and it will too will come to you, that you will realize that this body is but weakness, but it will be raised with power. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. Now here, don't be confused into thinking that a spiritual body is not a physical body. Back in chapter 2, we see that there's natural people and spiritual people. Both have bodies. It's just whether God's Spirit is at work within them to receive spiritual truths. A spiritual body is a physical body, just like a natural body, but it is part of the spiritual age, it's part of the resurrection age. It shares the nature of the God who gives His Spirit to us now. The point is, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And just as Jesus was raised physically from the grave, so too will all who believe in Him. And this transformation isn't just for those who have died. If you look down in verse 50, we read, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood, these current bodies, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And so for those who are still alive on earth, when Christ returns with judgment to bring in the glorious new creation, to raise the dead, well, those still alive will also be transformed in an instant to take on this imperishable immortality fit for all eternity. Friends, Jesus has been raised, and so all who believe in Him can join Him, can have life with Him. This is the wonderful certainty and hope of the Christian life. You know where you're going, regardless of when death comes knocking. And so, friends, if you haven't yet, can I urge you to turn to Christ today? His, is the, his life is the assurance that we all need. As well as the invitation to join Him, there are two significant implications for how we live now in light of Christ's resurrection Here's another chance to have a chat with those around you. Oh, what do you think are some of the implications of believing in the risen Christ for how we live now? 30 seconds. All right, friends, let's come back together. I'd love to hear your thoughts, I'd love to hear your feedback. Any ideas? What are some of the implications of believing in the risen Christ for how we live now? Any thoughts? Don't need to be afraid of death. It's a wonderful implication. Other thoughts? Things that are not life-changing. 
Don't bother benching. Another great application. I can think of, <laughs> I can think of some others. Uh, let's explore them. If we've gone down to bench press, we should move on. Uh, what is that? Point four, raised to rule, so honor him. Uh, we've already seen that Jesus is the risen Christ. He's declared to be the ultimate ruler under God. So have a look at how this rule is unpacked. Let's have a read from verse 24. Then comes the end, when he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I'm glad that's clear, we should move on. Uh, well, the pronouns, the order, it all gets a little confusing. And if you're like me, you might even find what a pronoun is to be a little confusing. But I too am an engineer. The basic picture is, I think, that Jesus is the Christ who currently reigns. And every power and authority is being brought under His control. No enemy can withstand Him. All will submit to Him. Verse 27 quotes from Psalm 8 that shows us that Christ's reign is the fulfillment of the commission that God gave to humanity. The task we failed to do is we turned our back on God. Instead, Christ fulfills humanity's purpose. He rules over creation as God intended, and not just creation, He rules over every power, visible and invisible. And so we fulfill our purpose, not by being great in and of ourselves, but by being united to Christ by faith. You probably also hear the echoes of Psalm 110 that we read earlier about the Christ. Having all His enemies placed under His feet, it's like a, a footstool, a cushion for Him to rest His feet upon. Christ's resurrection declares Him to be the almighty ruler over all, the one who fulfills what humanity was destined to. And that means that there is nowhere safe if you want to continue to reject the authority, the rule, the reign of Jesus Christ. It may seem okay for a while, but every stronghold of opposition will crumble. Time is short. The last enemy to be defeated by Christ is death itself, and through His own resurrection, the nails are in the coffin. Death is on its last legs. It's running on fumes. Its time is almost up. When Christ returns, death will be no more. And all who are with Christ will be raised forever with Him. And that will be the end, at least of this age. For at that point, Christ will honor His Father and deliver over this kingdom of peace to Him. And he will submit himself to God's rule. This is a worked example of the beautiful order we saw back in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, between Christ and God, both equal in dignity and divinity, but living in ordered relationship. And so Christ, having brought everything under his control, then honors the Father by handing the kingdom to him. Now, if you know who Christ is, this ultimate power and authority, then you obviously want to honor him in your life. In fact, even more, even more than death, Christ's resurrection must shape how we live now. Now, if you're here and you think there's no such thing as God and life is just about having a good time, the Bible actually says you're half right. If you have a look down at the end of verse 32, if the dead are not raised, 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If death is the end, if there's nothing more, then go for it. Pursue pleasure for as long as you can, for as long as you've got. But the problem with being half right is you're also half wrong. Because your logic may seem consistent, but there's a crucial flaw in the initial presupposition. Death is not the end. Christ's resurrection changes that. He declares, well, once for all, that Christ is the one who has conquered the grave and now reigns, and so life in His kingdom must now be lived for His pleasure and not our own. This is no time for drunkenness or sinful rebellion. Ignorance is no excuse. Following your mates is not a legitimate reason. It's time to wake up to reality and to honour Christ as King. He has been raised immortal and so we now live for Him. And we're at point five. In this passage, we've seen this radical reversal of the whole order of the world. In our experience, human bodies and lives are weak. They're perishable. They're immortal. They're mortal. In time, we're all swallowed up by the seemingly unconquerable and insatiable and everlasting death. But in Christ, and through Christ's resurrection from the dead, there's the promise of transformation. If we commit ourselves to Jesus by faith, we too have the promise, the assurance of being transformed. For the perishable will put on what is imperishable, for what is mortal to be clothed with immortality. In Christ, death is not the end. But it's not just about us, because death also changes. Through Christ's resurrection, death has been defeated. Sin has been conquered through Christ's perfect life. The sting of death has been removed, and soon, like an annoying insect, death itself will be crushed. This is all Christ's work, but it's God's delight to share the spoils of this ultimate victory with all who call Christ their Lord. Have a look down from verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for this incredible gift. Not earned, but freely given through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having received this gift, Paul then lands the plane in verse 58 with the conclusion that brings us back to the beginning. There's stability, there's purpose, and there's incredible assurance. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Just as we saw in verses 1 and 2 at the start of the chapter, when you know Christ and the power of His resurrection, you must not go anywhere else. That is the firm foundation for life and for eternity. Be steadfast, be immovable. But unlike your favorite doomsday preppers, this doesn't mean that you stock up and you bunker down. That's not how you be steadfast and immovable. Instead, it means we get to work. We live for Him, for He is worthy. For He is the one that we serve for all eternity. For the good news of what He has done is what the world needs to hear more than anything else. And this is the work of the Lord. Did you notice that all the Corinthian Christians are told to do this work? It's not just the paid ministers or the Bible study leaders or the super Christians or the retirees or anyone else. It's for everybody. And did you notice when and how much of this work all Christians are to do? 
It's not just an hour on Sunday or an hour midweek. It's not just a portion of time every day. They are to always abound in the work of the Lord. It's in always, in all of life. In fact, it's a way of life. It's how God's people live. So what is this work of the Lord? Well, some suggest it could be everything that you do as a Christian. Your study, your work, your service. But if it's everything, how then do we pursue it? I think it's got to be something particular. And if we flip over to chapter 16, I think we see what Paul has in mind. In chapter 16 and verse 10, we read the instruction that when Timothy, Paul's co-worker, comes, see that you put him at ease among you. Why? For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. You see, Paul and Timothy are both doing the work of the Lord and they're both those whose lives are devoted to Christian service, to Christian ministry. Not always being paid for it but with an undivided and an unrivaled focus and commitment. They are there proclaiming the good news of the gospel. They are there seeking the lost. They are there seeking to build up and establish God's people in the truth that they must cling to. Perhaps you could say that the work of the Lord is what God's people do in the service of God and for the sake of His kingdom. And it's not just for those who are set apart in formal roles. It's for all of us. So it might involve talking with a friend after class about Jesus. It might involve leading a Bible study, catching up with another student to read the Bible. It might mean praying each morning for those who don't know the Lord Jesus. It might mean giving generously to support gospel workers. It might involve teaching Scripture in school or helping welcome to people to church or, or chatting intentionally after church or, or at afternoon tea. It could look like any of these things and many more. But you get the idea. It's a life that's devoted to abounding in serving the God who has saved us and brought us into His kingdom. It may involve, for some of us, giving up the degree that we've studied to have more time to abandon this work. But for others of us, we're going to continue to abandon the Lord's work alongside a job to pay the bills and to provide for ourselves and for others. But did you see the great assurance, the great purpose, that knowing the resurrection of the Lord gives to our lives? Christ is the Lord that everyone should honour. And so we proclaim this truth to the world that needs to know. We hold fast this truth because there's no hope, no life, no forgiveness anywhere else. Death can come at the hour that we least expect. But knowing Christ matters more than anything else. So if you don't know it, turn to Christ today. And if you do know it, hold fast and hold it out to others. And the assurance that comes with this commission is that it will never be in vain. Vanity is a great statement of failure. You set up a picnic and you have it cancelled in the rain. You stay up all night working on assignment only to turn up to class and realise that the question set by the lecturer was wrong. And he's reissued the assignment and given you another two weeks. It's like when you labour hard, you train for sporting success and then you get injured just before the game. It's all in vain. It's all to no benefit. Death, weakness, uncertainty, sin in life, so many things can make all our best efforts vanity, failure, useless. Vanity has come up a few times now. passage in verse 2. Failure to hold fast to gospel truth is to believe in vain. If Christ hasn't been raised, we're told in verse 14, proclaiming the gospel is vain and believing is in vain. But here there's an incredible promise. No matter how weak or failing or unimpressive, or seemingly inconsequential, what you do to serve the Lord, the work that you do to serve the Lord, when you speak of Christ and you proclaim Christ, that is never in vain. 
It is never useless. It will never be wasted. Friends, do you see how the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ changes everything? Even more than death, it gives focus and meaning and clarity to our lives. It brings us into the relationship with the Lord who reigns forever. It gives us hope, no fear of death. It gives us purpose and a commission, a work, a life to live that is fruitful and can never be frustrated. What a delight to be part of. Let us hold fast to this truth always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you raised Christ from the dead to declare that the resurrection age has begun. Father, we pray that we may all turn to Christ and find hope of life with Him. Father, we pray that we may honour Him as we live with Him as Lord. And may we serve Him, always seeking to abound in the work of the Lord. And we thank You for Your incredible promise that this labour labor will never be in vain. Father, please use our weak efforts for all the days that You give us until Christ returns for the glory and honour of Your Son. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.